Hi, I'm Miranda. And I'm Stephanie. We've been friends for more than 15 years. I live in Ottawa. And I live in Winnipeg. I'm raising two girls. And I'm raising two boys. We're both wives and working moms who do our best to make it all work and to enjoy our empowered lives. We think feminism is still a work in progress in our homes, our workplaces, and our politics. And we love to learn, especially from other women. So we started Women Don't Do That to talk about issues women care about today and to inspire us to do whatever it is we think we can't do. Mary Gordon is an award-winning social entrepreneur, an educator, author, child advocate, and parenting expert. She is the creator and president of the Roots of Empathy and Seeds of Empathy programs and a global leading expert on empathy. She is a 2018 recipient of the Governor General's Innovation Award, a member of the Order of Canada, and Canada's first Ashoka Fellow. I could not be more thrilled or grateful to be speaking with you, Mary. Thank you for being our guest on Women Don't Do That. Thank you, Miranda. My pleasure. Now, when you hear that introduction, it certainly represents the creation of a significant legacy, and I'm sure just a tremendous amount of work and sacrifice. What has motivated you throughout your life to take on these these big projects and to do this work? Well, I guess I've always had a sense that life should be fair and that children are the biggest gift in the world and they should be happy. They should be allowed to be productive and we should be removing barriers which prevent that. So I guess that's it. Uh, I rage after justice. Well, you certainly are having an impact. I came to learn about you through my own participation in the Roots of Empathy program. My son, Jace, and I have had eight visits now with the grade threes at Royal School here in Winnipeg. And I have to thank you because it has been such a meaningful, memorable experience. I'm so thankful for it. And I would love for you to share with our audience how the Roots of Empathy program works and the impact that it's having around the world. Sure. Well, I'm delighted to hear that you're a Roots of Empathy mommy. <laughs> the idea is that um, we bring a parent like yourself with a baby between two and four months of age into one particular classroom to visit each month over the school year. There is um, a Roots of Empathy instructor who comes with the mother, but also total of 27 times. There's a curriculum, and the idea is if you cultivate empathy in children with the mommy and the baby as the best model of empathy in the world, the children will um, become more um, pro-social. They will become uh, more aware of themselves and others, develop greater empathy, and when empathy goes up, aggression goes down. So that it's a win-win. The children personally thrive better the class does better, and the research shows that it lasts over time. So, you know, people say to me, well, why a, a mother and a baby or a father and a baby? It's because the first year of life in that attachment relationship is where empathy develops. And not every child lands lucky. And there will be in any classroom a number of children 
who for nobody's fault in particular did not have a good secure attachment relationship so they don't learn to trust they don't understand how other people feel they don't understand how they feel so that when you follow as the children are following you and your baby even though they're in grade three, do you find they ask you questions every week? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. You can see the sincere excitement. They're, they're rooting for us to succeed. They yeah. absolutely celebrate Jace's progress as he grows. And uh, it's, it's wonderful to watch. It really is. And honestly, Mary, it's been a very helpful experience for me as a mother. I wish that I had done it with my first son because as you have those conversations about really tuning in more to your child and observing your child, it does help you as a mother even to be more intentional about about being empathetic. And it's not that I felt that I wasn't a strong, capable mother beforehand. It's just that it has really made me more aware of that. And and I think just it makes it easier to be patient with your child. So I've, I've really benefited from the experience too. That is lovely to hear. And I think the thing is parents are so busy and very often stressed with multiple roles that the still, quiet, relaxed time and the observations of 25 or 30 little people who are so interested in your baby gives when it's a second baby very often we hear from the families that it's the only time when they can zone in be with their baby without the phone or dinner or laundry or job that parents really appreciate that that bonding time. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll remember it. I'll remember it forever. It's just been a very positive experience. I wonder if the research shows or if you have observed that boys and girls react differently to the baby or to the program. No, they don't react differently. What you will find is that um, gender expectations in society particularly when the boys, uh, sometimes it starts as early as eight years old, um, that the girls are expected to be more interested in nurturing behavior. They play with dolls, boys build and destroy. Um, It's not really the case. Even with the 13-year-old boys we have in grade eight, they, for the first two or three sessions, are a bit standoffish because they know what they're expected to be. Society expects them not to be nurturing and gentle and tender, but they're all in before Christmas. They're all in. Mm -hmm. And um, we find, and I mean, we had an end of year baby celebration um, every year. And we hear from, we often have these kids in grade six to eight come and speak. And they always speak about when the boys speak, how transformational it was for them that they can see themselves in the role of father, that they didn't realize that babies were people. And the thing is they're learning from the baby their own feelings because when you identify them in the baby, then you're not threatened and you're not vulnerable. It gives you a risk-free way of talking, understanding yourself and talking about your own feelings. And boys really appreciate the opportunity to do that 
because girls do that more naturally in the way they're socialized. So the boys really appreciate it and they tell us. Mm -hmm. So you're just trying to eclipse the cultural expectations and they're able to do that quickly. That is right on with what I've observed as I've been reflecting, because we've had eight visits now, I was thinking about how initially the girls, the girls are enthusiastic right from the start, but some of the boys hold back. And then, like you said, as the visits progress, I mean, our last visit, everyone was just so open and, and so, so excited just on their faces and, and confident in sharing and just full participation from everyone in the class. Uh, you have said that we are all predisposed to be empathic. But if this is the case, why do you think we see such a prevalence of selfish, disconnected behavior, uh, not just in classrooms, but throughout society? Well, we do know that it's in the first year of life, the quality of interaction between a parent or parents and the baby that allows the baby to connect to himself and then to be able to have relationships. But if you're looking at the world as it is, I think the way we live our lives has created a crisis of connection. I think um, it's increasingly difficult for people to make friends and keep friends. We're living alone at a higher rate than we ever had. We are connecting with screens rather than people. And there's an alienation and a disconnection which is completely unhealthy. And um, there is um, an epidemic, I'd say a pandemic, if you like, of loneliness. The way we are living our lives is not the way that is best to, um, to have positive mental health and well-being. So I think there's things we can do about that. You lose your empathy when you're dealing with screens all the time. You can certainly get it back. But if we never have meaningful relationships with people, um, it's very difficult to have a meaningful life. And in fact, not being in meaningful relationships and being lonely is the same as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's that bad for your health. Wow. So um, we do know that there is a price to be paid for this alienation and this disconnection. And it's not like it's too late, but we have to be mindful of what it is. How are we living our lives? You know, there's parents have a role here with screens. Um, we, our children love candy, <laughs> but we don't allow they them do. to have as much as they would like. I do too. I'm a chocoholic, but I'm aware, I'm responsibly aware, I might get diabetes. I don't care about getting gaining weight, but I do care about diabetes. So we have to be managing how children spend their time. And it's not so much what they're doing on screen. It's that they're not in real-time connection with other people. You know, mm -hmm. there's lots of wonderful things they can do on screens. And technology is our friend. But... It's at our peril we ignore children's time in with one another. You, you started initially that answer with the importance of the mother-child bond and that initial attachment. 
And one of the criticisms that we hear sometimes of the feminist movement is that it's a threat to the family and that we need, you know, mothers need to be focused on staying home with their children. Do you think, do you think there's any truth to that? Do you think a mother needs to stay home with her baby to develop that secure bond? I don't think it's about the mother. I think it's about the parent. And the parent can be a mother or a father. And um, whoever the parent is, it only takes one, I will drop dead for you, relationship mm -hmm. to allow a child to thrive. If there are two people who are bonded or attached to the baby, that's fabulous. If there's an extended family, fabulous. But um, it's not a, a matter of guilt to the mother to stay home. It's a matter of society providing policies which are based on the science. And the science will tell you it's an insanity to separate a baby from the parent in those early months and the first year of life. Insanity. Because we know that it is their bond that sets the child up for success like nothing else. Now, that's not to say that a parent can't go out and work. But if a, if a parent wants to go out and work, they deserve the best possible childcare and they need to have flexible time so that they might be able to get home early or work shorter days or whatever. But if we know, and we do know, that the most important relationship in life is the attachment relationship and that it needs nurturing, if you have a nurturing grandparent or a very nurturing childcare provider that can do that, um, that's wonderful. But if we don't have policies that allow the parent to have that choice or provide the parent with viable options that will give the baby the best possible social support, emotional support, we're really going to have failed societies. And it's not about the mother. It's about a parent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, parental leave should be about whichever parent wants to take the leave. And, you know, the parent can be a mom, dad, it can be two dads, it can be two moms. That's not the issue. The relationship is the issue. So dads can do just as good a job. The only thing they can't do is breastfeed. And if dads are home with babies, skin to skin is not a problem. So I don't think it's a, a liberation issue. I think it's a policy issue. No, I was reflecting on that actually as we were preparing in terms of how grateful I am to be in Canada where I have the 12 month or even up to 18 months now maternity leave and there's parental leave offered for fathers now. But we look at the United States and we see that there's very limited policies in place to support maternity and parental leave. Do you think that there is... I mean, certainly one area where we see just a tremendous lack of empathy is in political discourse, right? And we we see now in the United States that this is becoming more and more of a, a of an issue. I just wonder if you, you know, how do we bring more empathy into the political discourse and what do we need to be asking our, expecting of our elected officials in terms of making this a priority? Well, let me go back to the beginning of your question. You are saying in Canada, we have generous policy for parental leave. 
That's because in Canada, we have believed the science and we see children as a good investment, a good social investment. We see them, I guess you might say, as social capital, that they will be healthier. And we know there's um, all the research also about early adversity. It uh, diminishes brain capacity, so it, it will increase likelihood of addictions. It will increase likelihood of a slippery slope of falling into crime. I mean, there's a very, very long history of um, allowing adversity to happen in early childhood and preventing a secure attachment from falling, you know, from getting together. So in Canada, our policies fall out of research, which is brilliant. In the United States, they have all the same research, but they are one of two countries in the entire world, including the developing world, who do not have a policy for parental leave. So what it leads you to is Canada and the United States are next door to one another, but the, the values of the countries are very different. So the values dictate the policies. So in the US, there's no gun control and there's no control over the protection of children. Because if we looked at the science, we would know you need to make sure that in that first year of the life, that that baby is well cared for, either giving the parent the, the support to stay home or providing, you know, childcare that is high standard. So <clears throat> there are huge differences of values between Canada and the United States. So when you say, the, um, the lack of empathy in public discourse. Um, we have never witnessed in uh, history the level of disrespectful and non-empathic um, discourse in the United States. And I don't think it's at all comparable in Canada, although I'm not proud of some of the public camp you know, campaigns, election campaigns we've seen. Um, but the idea that our public figures would be models for us um, is something that has fallen away in the United States. We used to, everywhere in the world, look up to the elected leadership. And I think in the world, um, this leaning to the right, the populist movement, is happening everywhere. And um, it's of great concern and um, empathy is required to combat that. So we have to believe in our shared humanity. And um, that's what empathy does. It allows you to see the humanity in the other person. And we are in the middle of this crisis of connection. So, um, you know, I'm no political analyst, but I think it's tragic what's going on, and the whole Brexit debate in the UK is, um, you know, the we always thought of the UK as really being one of the places where democracy was very secure. So the assault on all the principles of democracy, which is supposed to see everybody as having equal participation, I mean, you have racism uh, bubbling to the surface. So... This not in my backyard is taking 
countrywide proportions in many countries. Mm-hmm. I think for many of us, it can be so overwhelming and upsetting to feel disempowered and to not sure, not sure how to bring about the changes we want to see. But I know for myself as a mother, I remind, I remind myself that one thing I can do is nurture empathy in my own children and model that in my own behavior as best I can. And so thank you for creating these opportunities to help us do that within society. And I'm certainly encouraged to know that that is one way that we can bring about change is by raising sons and daughters who won't hopefully tolerate that behavior from their elected officials the way I think we currently are. Uh, I want to ask a question on behalf of moms listening because there is a certain issue that has come up in my circle of friends a number of times and I would just love to get your insight on it. When you have a child who is being bullied at school, specifically who's being physically bullied at school, at what point do you say to that child, okay, I give you permission to hit back? Or if my child asks, you know, what do I do if I see somebody get punched at school or being beaten up, you know, can I intervene? Should I intervene? Should I use physical force? What are your thoughts on that? How, how do we empower our children to deal with some of the physical Uh, bullying that happens in our schools today? Well, the physical bullying that happens in the school needs to be, and I mean, I've heard it so often over the decades, it needs to be taken seriously. So it's one thing to go to the teacher, you need to go to the principal, whether if your child is telling you about it, there is a harm that's being done to your child, even if they're witnessing. It's like domestic violence. Um, children who witness domestic violence are wounded by the observation of it. Children who witness bullying, even if they're not the recipient, it's deeply upsetting. They feel disempowered and they feel frightened and they lose their voice. So I think parents need to be really assertive. They need their children to see that you stand up for things that are not fair. You cannot expect a child to stand up against things. So um, if you go to the teacher and explain what's going on and the teacher does not have a satisfactory approach, and nobody trains the teachers to do this, by the way, if you go to the principal and the principal does not give you a satisfactory approach, you need to go to the director of education who I promise you will take your call and you will have action because it is unconscionable that a child, knowing what we know about the deleterious impact of bullying, that a child should have to go to school and accept that. So in terms of telling your child to fight back, that's absolutely up to the mother. I I wouldn't, or the parent, I wouldn't have anything to say about that. In terms of the child witnessing and standing up for somebody else, Thank God they do. Um, In terms of what happens in school, sometimes if your child fights back or if the child stands up and intervenes when someone else is being hurt, which is your natural instinct to do, you know, it's a a good Samaritan who stands up. Um, They will get in trouble. 
that's just the way it works. But sometimes it's trouble worth getting into. And I, I just can't emphasize enough that you have to show strength, even though you know you will maybe be criticized, even though it might work out that your child might pay the price. You show the standard of what is just and fair and right. And if other people behave in a less than admirable way, you have taken the high road. So I think a lot more parents have to take this seriously. Children who say they have a tummy ache are telling you something. They're saying, I'm scared, I'm stressed, I don't want to go to school. It's unfair that a little child should have to take all that responsibility and create stories to avoid the tension. So I, I take this, you know, schools, generally speaking, try very hard to have a policy. But it's not about policies. It's about people. How... How strongly does the classroom teacher believe that this shouldn't go on? How much support is a classroom teacher being given to give teeth to it so that the teacher can say, no, this is not okay. You're going to have to leave this class. We're going to have to call your parents. This is not okay. Now, all to say, very often, children who bully have been bullied. And... Um, we have a lot of change of bullying. One of the major scientific findings of Roots of Empty program is that it dramatically reduces bullying and other forms of cruelty and aggression as it builds up empathy. And the injustice um, of a child being bullied is, it's just not okay. And for a parent to not feel empowered to do something about it, they need to give themselves a shake and get out there and go to the school. Mm -hmm. That's so good. I think we need to own our influence as parents and really see ourselves as playing a role in the well-being of the school as a whole. And if, if parents are listening and they would like to get involved in the Roots of Empathy program, we're going to put a link in the show notes to the site so they can find all the ways to do that. But how would you encourage parents or even just concerned citizens to... Uh, to encourage our local schools to start running the Roots of Empathy programs? Well, it's a, it's a good question because um, what's the span of your, your show? I'm just wondering before I answer that question. Where is your show heard, your blog heard? We have uh, listeners in Canada, the United States, and actually we have some in Ireland as well. So those are the three countries that we've reached so far. I don't think there's many listeners in Ireland, but... We, we have a significant percentage in the States and in Canada. Well, we've got programs all over Ireland, uh, in all 40 green fields of Ireland. So <laughs> um, in the U.S., yes, we have programs and in every province of Canada. And if you want to get involved with the program, our website gives you who to call, for example, for Ireland and for the U.S. and there's a name for Canada, and then in Canada, in every province, there's a name. And we would love parents to volunteer with their babies. The babies have to be, um, when the program starts in the fall, the babies have to be between two and four months of age because we want the children to witness every milestone in that first year. Mm -hmm. And also, we're very interested in parents who have volunteered they very often want to become instructors. And we really encourage that because their perspective is so valuable. 
What the parents don't see is the class the week after the visit where the children talk very deeply about how they felt about things and about how they feel about themselves. So we would really um, encourage that parents go to our website. Okay. And if we want to, I mean, in my son's school presently, they're not operating the program. I wonder if the best approach is to uh, email the principal or email a guidance counselor. What would you recommend there? Um, Email the principal and ask for a response. And um, it works differently in different places. Um, You're in Winnipeg. The government um, funds the program in Winnipeg. So you would need to ask your principal of the school to be in touch with Healthy Child Manitoba, who provide the program, and they're very equitable. The program is right across Winnipeg. Um, you know, if you were in Toronto, where I am, the, the Toronto District School Board organizes, there's a, a key point person, and the name of that person is on our website, and um, the district decides which schools get the program but if you don't ask you don't get Hmm. so it's worth asking and um, you know if anyone has trouble finding or getting a response we're happy to intervene okay wonderful thank you well we're going to move now to our last few questions that we like to ask some form of to each of our guests and these just uh, bring out sometimes some more personal things So I'll ask you, Mary, what is the best rule you ever broke? (laughs) The best rule I ever broke. Um, I guess that only boys can have paper roots. (laughs) (laughs) I love that answer. (laughs) That was a rule I grew up in St. John's, Newfoundland. And only boys had paper roots. And I wanted to have a paper route because I wanted to make some money. And I don't know, I was, I think I was young, I was about 11. And um, I convinced them to let me have a paper route. So they gave me the paper route with the steepest hills. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you showed no them, wanted, didn't you? Yeah, <laughs> no one wanted those three hills. So I took it and uh, I enjoyed every single, I used to sit on my paper bag in the snow and slide all the way down and then come deliver the papers all the way up. <laughs> I love that answer. That speaks exactly to the name women don't do that, right? Is that idea of being told there's certain things you can't do. And I love that you just defied that. And thank you for sharing that memory. Mary, what is the most valuable habit or your most valuable habit that was the hardest to create? I guess the uh, idea of uh, reflection. Um, I'm a very busy person, whether I'm working on things at home or my formal work with Roots of Empathy, that um, I didn't particularly leave room for reflection. So I made a deal with myself about 20 years ago that I drove to work and I drove home and that I would not turn on the radio and would not talk on the phone, that I would allow myself some reflective time. What have I learned? What should I be doing differently? Not just your to-do list for tomorrow, but the what if, 
and the how come. Um, so that reflective period, I find really grounding. And sometimes, you know, it's a smarten up and do this, you know, fly right. Um, so I, I think that habit um, was hard to establish, but very worthwhile. Mm, that's excellent. My guidance counselor teacher used to always say, the unexamined life is not worth living. And that really stayed with me. Uh, so our last question today, share a book that made you wiser. Well, uh, the book I'm reading, I'm reading five books at the minute, but uh, the one I Only just, five? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm very distractible. <laughs> the, the, the one that I, I just came back uh, yesterday from Vancouver, and on the, the plane, I started reading David Brooks, um, The Second Mountain. Now, oh. David Brooks is a New York Times bestselling author, and he, he had written the book The Road to Character and a, a number of books before. Um, but this book is really interesting because he makes himself vulnerable. And he comes off, as a, in his articles, very brilliant, but a little more right-leaning than I am, but he's changed. And this book is his journey, and I find it inspiring that a person who has been bulletproof and who's in the public eye is prepared to, to talk about his personal life and his vulnerabilities and his new mountain to climb. And I always find it endearing and inspiring when people make themselves vulnerable. It's how you can get close to people. Hmm. I love that you recommended that book. I think it's a little bit serendipitous because I was listening just a few days ago to David Brooks' interview with Oprah where he was talking about The Second Mountain, this book. And do you know who he mentioned? No. He mentioned you. He mentioned <laughs> Mary Gordon and the wonderful Roots of Empathy program and how it needs to be in every school and how it just has a tremendous impact and he was speaking to the importance of empathy. And I mean, I love Oprah's podcast and, and they were having this wonderful conversation and I got so excited. I thought, I'm interviewing her in a few days. <laughs> I get to speak with Mary Gordon and I, and it, honestly, this has been lovely. This has just been a, a, such a privilege. Thank you very much for your time, for sharing your wisdom with us. I'm so thankful that the listeners to Women Don't Do That are, are going to get to discover you if they haven't before and, and learn from you. Thank you very much. Well, my pleasure, Miranda, and thank you for being a Roots of Empathy mother. My pleasure. <laughs> okay, right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Women Don't Do That. We hope you're inspired to do whatever it is you think you can't do. Find all our podcasts and blog content at womendontdothat.com and stay connected with us on Instagram and Twitter. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join us next time.